0: This is the first and only talk of this Life Vow Sushin. A number of years ago, this place was founded, Great Vow Zen Monastery. And when we were naming it, we were trying to think, well, what's what's the appropriate name we decided first off that it was it was a monastery. It was a place where there were people living there full time. That the spiritual practice was intense, was focused. We decided that it was a place that was not a drop-in center. It was not a retreat center. It was not a conference center. It was not. It was really a, a place of where the uh, mono, in the sense of a one-pointed intention, was the zeitgeist. Was the foundation. And so we have Jizo Bodhisattva, which was the the archetypal, uh, image uh, of Val. Chosen had written her book on Jizo Bodhisattva uh, at that time. And so when we came over here, we started thinking, what really is the foundation we want to have—a monastery, Jizo, great vow. And so we threw out number of different names which i can't remember anymore but we came with great vows in monastery and vow in the sense of commitment vow in the sense of a clear intention vow in the sense of something bigger than me vow in the sense of something that i am directed towards i am submitting submitting to that i will accomplish that is uh, bigger than just my little opinion, a great vow. And we'll, uh, during the ceremony tomorrow, <coughs> the great vow of Jizo Bodhisattva will be talked about in many different levels, or we all participate in that, in different levels. But fundamentally, it's the vow to help all beings, not just benefit people in the ordinary sense of the word, but to free people from suffering, free ourselves from suffering. Now, this great vow to be free from suffering is inherent in every single person. We can't step away from it. It is as, as intimate as touching a fire with your hand and instantly pulling back. It is as intimate as uh, losing a beloved and wanting solace. It is as intimate as stubbing your toe or getting a cut and wanting to Have some medicine for it or remedy for it. No one wants to suffer. And so the great vow has at its very, very most intimate root that desire that we all have that's expressed in all these little and sometimes apparently silly ways to be free from suffering, to be free. So at this particular level we're talking about, all human activity, all human activity, from the craziest to the most profound, includes this vow. In a way, we could say in another tradition, it is the vow that everything to return to the source, everything to return to God. And in a way, it's the vow that everything comes from the source. Where did all this appear from? history, that is. So, in one sense, all of us have this deep, inherent vow. The vow for awakening. The vow for freedom. The vow for liberation. The vow not to start to, to suffer. In Buddhism, we call it a, an aspiration for enlightenment. We call it nirvana. And that vow comes absolutely together and in part with there was a, um, I can't remember his name, professor at Colgate, and <coughs> he was a philosophy psychology teacher. I think he was a minister, a Presbyterian minister. And one of his students there uh, ended up being a reporter and, and went to the the hellish places on Earth to report. And he went to, you know, he was in Beirut, and he was in Afghanistan, and he was you know in the Middle East and lots of different places. I think he was in Africa. And <coughs> He was talking to his, uh, you know, this college professor, his spiritual advisor, really. I was talking to him, and he was saying, <clears throat> oh, I've seen such terrible, terrible things. What's the point of it all? And his advisor said, there is everything like that has love at its core. There is no true love without dukkha suffering. There is no true suffering without love. So in a way, to be willing to be a human being. To be willing to experience whatever we are, exp- we are given to experience. Whatever circumstance, whatever place that we find ourselves in. Whether in the middle of the great tsunami or the great Kalpa fire at the end of the universe. Or whether we find ourselves in a war zone. Or whether we find ourselves hungry or we're living with people who are distressed. wherever it is. That place. Right there. It's not only a place of love. Not only a place of dukkha. But also a place of liberation. So easy to say things like that. But our part of our spiritual practice is to realize this <clears throat> for ourselves. Not only for ourselves, but for everyone we encounter. So whether it be a desire to make money or to find a partner, to know God, to win a war, a terrorist or anti terrorist, to get a job, to do psychological work, fix a meal, has this inherent wisdom at its foundation. So that's what this vows is based on. This vow is based upon each person, each one of us inherit inherent aspiration. And it's not only just aspiration, it's inherent goodness. And it's not only inherent goodness, it's also inherent uniqueness. It's also our unique and possibility of living the only life that we can live, that no one else can live it. Our life vow must be, in part, to live the only life that we can live. That's the life we've been given. That's the place we find ourselves. That is the place of dukkha, friction, suffering, as they say, clinging, grasping, all those terms. And also, that is the place of liberation. So, this foundation of life vows, not only the session the little weak little thing we're doing here, but this life vow that we are a part of, we have to have deep respect. Deep respect that we are not just some little pinball being bounced around the pinball machine of life, but that this very unique life which only we can live has in it a profound challenge, a profound call. It also means no one is defective. So this kind of fundamental view is uh, is a nice way of sort of framing things sometimes. Um, That's the only way of framing things. We could all just go become lumps, and then, you know, we would return to the source, and all would be well. Uh, It's not about becoming a nice zombie. So we can have the big view. The big view just really is about respect. You know, it's such a big view, it's such a magnificent thing. It's such an extraordinary event that we are human being alive right here, able to talk and listen and see and hear and smell. that's just a that's just a, you know, a miracle. But our life is also calling us for some specific things. So this miracle is a matter of respect. You know? but if we just sort of sit around and throw our hands up and say, "I'm a miracle, I'm a miracle, not very skillful. So it's very important that we also, under appreciating this life, appreciating the uniqueness and the suffering of this life and all the things that we've talked about, it's also important that we have a sense of efficacy, a sense of <clears throat> empowerment, sense of direction. I was talking to somebody who was not part of the Session, but who came... There's a lot going on sometimes outside of Sishin. I was talking to somebody earlier who said they finally realized that their responsibility in life was not to be the Dalai Lama. Duh. (laughs) But we all have some version of that. We we have some version. We think, oh, when I finally got it made, I'll be fill in the blank. Now, I, I think that Fuho did... This is the beginning of this retreat where we had exemplars and we look at the people who we, we are, are touched by, the people who we, like the Dalai Lama, is one of my personal spiritual heroes. And, and if we're looking at that clearly, it's because there are qualities that the Dalai Lama or our exemplars have which I would like to cultivate in myself. I would like to, to see them mature and ripen. But if we think... That we can become somebody else. Oh, finally, you know, I'll speak Tibetan and then all will be well. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. So we have some things we have to do. And some of those qualities of our exemplars that we would like to cultivate in ourselves, the things that we admire in others, are things that we can cultivate in ourselves but it's got to be based upon knowing your own mind, knowing your own heart, knowing that you have potential which you cannot even imagine, knowing that the future and how it's going to unfold, you know, despite all of our dystopian thoughts and concerns and despite all of our you know, romantic teenage ideas, the future is going to come out something different, something new will come along, and we do not know what it's going to be. We are going to have some other experience. Now, of course, in the course of the human life, there are some predictable experiences, but the state of mind that we are in those in those experiences in is completely unknown to us. So I remember, I know ch- teenagers often think about, you know, I'll be an old pe- person. I remember talking to a friend of mine <coughs> when I was in high school, and we were saying, we were looking at one of our teachers who we thought was ancient. He must have been 50. You know? and, and we just said, oh, boy, I ever get to be like that and you know I'll commit suicide and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> the way teenagers the way teenagers think <laughs> <Of course. laughs> but once we actually get there the world doesn't quite look like we thought it was going to look you know when we somebody was talking to uh, um, somebody can't remember, but somebody was saying to a young woman. She was saying it was, it was a, an older woman. She say, "Boy, you know, life just keeps getting better." You know, twenty-year-olds think that life goes downhill from the time that you're twenty. You know, I'm hale and hearty and strong and got full of juice. And maybe it doesn't really do that. Maybe there is some, some other qualities that begin to come out. Some other qualities that are actually more lively and more magnificent, more interesting, more rich then a 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 year old can understand. The future will, in a very superficial way, will look like we think it will look. We will get old and we will get sick and die. But the state of mind and the situations we encounter, there's unique things that will happen there. There's surprises. There's interesting things that will open up. We cannot predict how that's going to be. On the other hand, we can aim ourselves. And again, that's part of what these life life vows, these life intentions are. To aim ourselves so that we're not just a random pinball in the machine of life, but that we have a little bit of efficacy, that we have a little bit of sense of, where do I like to go? And part of that is based upon Not only this deep respect we spoke about, but also we don't know what our potential is. And so if we're going to aim, we may as well aim big. We're going to aim, we may as well aim, you know, rich, deep. Now, of course, if our aim is, I want to make a million dollars tomorrow, probably that won't future is all probability if on the other hand i want to be a deeply satisfied person i want to be able to offer some skill to others i want to be able to provide food and care for others i want to touch and know <clears throat> god i want to know the the deepest source of truth i want to be fully awake and fully alive these are quite possible. So when we're making vows, it's very important that if we're making, if we, if we say, if we make too particular a vow, we say, you know, I am going to look like this or look like that. It doesn't work so, so hard. I don't think I have it. But William Blake has a quote somewhere. William Blake, the great uh, English author. Uh, he says, anybody who, So, one of my spiritual heroes, especially when I was younger, was Helen Keller. Those of you who are younger may not remember her or may not know her. Helen Keller was someone who was born as a child um, who was deaf and blind and mute. Deaf and blind and mute. What would someone deaf and blind and mute do with their life? Someone who couldn't talk, who couldn't understand others, someone who couldn't see the world, who didn't know red from green. What would someone like that do with their life? Well, it turns out she did a whole lot with her life. It turns out that she, being blind, deaf, and mute, learned how to speak, learned how to listen, by she would put her hands on people's throats and she could understand what they were saying through her her fingertips, learned how to write, and learned how to inspire an entire generation of people. These are some of the quotes that I, uh, from Helen Keller. Although the world is full of suffering, it's also full of the overcoming of it. Character cannot be developed in ease and quiet. Only through the experience of trial and suffering can the soul be strengthened, ambition inspired, and success achieved. Everything has its wonders, even darkness and silence. I learn whatever state I'm in, and there are, therefore I'm content. I don't want to be the peace that patheth, un, passeth, passeth understanding, I want to be the understanding which brings that peace. I long to accomplish a great and noble task, but it's my chief duty to accomplish humble tasks as though they were great and noble. The world is moved along not only by the mighty shoves of its heroes, but also by the aggregate of tiny pushes of each honest worker. And that's where we're at right now. That's where, what we need to do. We have a big big view, a big aim, I hope, over the course of reflecting and meditating and talking, that each of you has some inspiration for a big view, a big aim for your life. And then, how do we live? We live little step by little step. We live by what's right in front of us. We live by what these hands can put themselves to. We live by the person we meet. We give manifest, we manifest our big vow through the specific little vows, the specific things that we do, the attitude that we bring, and also the things that we set our mind to. One of my, uh, one of the handouts that we used, a number of Years ago, uh, maybe I had given a series of preliminary vows to people, because you know people always have so much trouble. The word "vow" scares people so much. You know, they're afraid they're going to get trapped, they're afraid they're going to fail. You know, I make a vow to to get married and stay married, and immediately. If we let our fears run us, then of course, nothing happens, nothing's skillful. And so making a vow is not about being imprudent, but it's also not about fear. It's about courage. It's about even the ability to fail. So, one of the things I had suggested at one point, and we will give this opportunity tomorrow, is that we all begin writing down very specific. Small vows and very specific big vows. Now these have to come from one's own heart. It's not about we will now make the very biggest and best new New Year's resolution we've ever thought of. You know, what's the point of that? It's got to be a vow. It's got to be things that we would like to do, things that we are intending to do, things that we want to do that come from both our big view, but also what are the, the small steps that we're going to do? So I vow to become enlightened for the sake of all beings. Great. it's Wonderful. It's my, it's my fundamental vow, but what do you do with that? Another person said, I vow never to give up on my spiritual quest. I vow to be kind. I vow to help others. I vow not to be mean at heart. I vow not to become less self-centered. I vow to pass on any understanding. I vow to refine my functioning in truth. I vow to recover from my addictions. I vow not to waver in my faith. I vow to give up my obsession with my body. I vow to share any gift I give with somebody else. I vow to be faithful to my partner and children. I vow to understand the cons and questions of life. I vow to undertake the practice of living with the precepts. I vow to walk my spiritual path, even if I'm in a miserable state. I vow that even my anger will become a source for good. And, of course, when we're talking about vow... Because the word vow is kind of scary for people, and because it involves commitment, and people are so afraid of being trapped and being, being, um, failing. You know, we include. I promise. I tend. I hope. You know, maybe. You know, <clears throat> whatever, whatever will resonate with you is okay. You know, maybe I'll be a good person in the future. <laughs> if that, if that, if that's, if that's, all the courage one's heart has for, then by all means, put it out there. But vow is really about about courage. Now, there are particular kinds of vows. So we have these big vows. But then we have the vows that involve us putting ourselves on the line. We vow to finish the session. Now, a vow like that, you know, here we are. Basically, everybody here is going to finish the session. Seems like a a no-brainer. But you'd be amazed. How many people could never make a vow like that? How many people we've had who walked in, sat down the first hour and said, Ooh, I'm out of here. Too big. I can't do that. The vow to actually do a seven-day seshen is a big vow in some ways. The vow to actually com- commit yourself to doing what you're already doing. The vow to carrying something through. Now, anybody said came and said, I vow to be perfect all week long and never have my mind wander. Good luck. You know, I it would take a lot more than luck to do that. It would. It's impossible. So we have the kind of vows that we can put ourselves on and say, okay, here's a path I'm going to walk. I'm going to walk this particular path. It's not particularly helpful to say how I'm going to walk this path we can say, I would like to walk this path with grace and dignity. And I would like to not get totally bewildered when I fall on my face in the mud and I'm full of, you know, I'm black and ungraceful. And We can still say, I vow to walk the path. I vow to walk the path where I fall on my face. I vow to walk the path whether I'm graceful. I vow to walk the path whether I am full of doubt. I vow to walk the path whether I succeed or fail. I vow to walk the path whether people like me or don't like me. So, to actually say, you know, this is the, this is the place I'm going to aim, this is the steps I'm going to take, is a useful, useful for us. If we have a clear sense of our direction, even a fuzzy, moderate sense of our direction, if the sense of our direction is vaguely in the direction of good, However, we define that, it's useful. It's useful to really put it down and say, I really, when the opportunity comes for me to really do something that's going to save my skin, but is going to make me feel really terrible, the fact that we have said someplace, I really want to be a good person, is useful. Don't underestimate any of these vows. On the other hand, if we say, I'd like to finish college. I'm getting married. I'd like to be filial. or I'd like to have fidelity with my spouse, my partner. I'd like to support my children. I'd like to agree to fulfill my commitment for blank, blank, blank. Those are very, very helpful vows. They're the kind of vows that sustain us. Anybody who comes into uh, <coughs> residency here we have we have a vow um, to stay for a certain period of time. And we, we used to have this, I used to have this very naive thing of, you know, people make a vow for a year. Didn't work so well. Nine months. Didn't work so well. Six months. Didn't work so well. Three months. One month. Well now, so now people come... They make a vow for a month. We don't let them make a vow for a month until they've already been here for a week or so. So you know, we've kind of figured out how to make a vow that actually works for most people. (laughs) Figuring out how to make a vow that works for you is really important. So when we're working on these writings tomorrow, figuring out something that really will work for you that's meaningful, is useful. If someone becomes ordained here, The vow is you're going to be here for five years. Five years working with these teachers. But you can't make that vow until you've been around for a couple of years. So you have some idea what you're getting into. So part of the essence of a vow is knowing our own mind, knowing the circumstances, knowing what we want, knowing the conditions, and then making a vow that really is in accord with all of that. Once we have made a vow, once we have committed ourselves, once we have said, okay, I'll write that article, once we've committed ourselves and said, okay, I'll build this thing, once we've committed ourselves and said, okay, you you can depend upon me to do the dishes for the next hour, then we do everything possible to carry that out. Now, every vow has many different levels to it. So the foundation of Zen practice, the foundation of life practice, is at any moment the whole thing can fall apart. At any moment. We could have the great you know, Northwest tsunami happen, and this whole place could be down in our ears, and we could be buried in it, just like that. Maybe it would take a few minutes. Maybe it wouldn't take quite that fast. So the foundation of all of our practice and in vow and in, in vow in life has to be the acknowledgement that yeah this is you know we're really here for a very unknown amount of time. We're really here, you know. It's we can't really depend upon it. We're really here because for this opportunity, which could be gone. So given that. Given that we have this opportunity, given that we are here at this particular moment, given that, that this particular unique situation and circumstances will not come again in the same way, what do I want to do? What's important? we had a uh, one of my students is this. May even my lowly speech and idle chatter the sound bear the sound of the holy Dharma, soothing the suffering of myriad beings without pretense or preference. May all the movement of my hands be sacred mudras, holding close the jewels of refuge, reaching out to those in need, lifting beings from hell realms into bliss. May my eating and drinking be offerings, always mindful of the generosity of others, content with whatever I have, aware of the preciousness of this fleeting opportunity. May my endless hours of dullness and sleep be continuous visions of deities in their mandalas. May I be awake, even in the dream, never once mistaking illusion for truth. May all my worldly pursuits be in rejoicing in the merits of others and seeing their pure nature joyfully exchanging all my happiness for their suffering, grateful to them all. To the generosity of my elders and teachers, may my every breath of my life, every action, skillful or not, become the glorious fruit of the Dharma. And may I work tirelessly, and yet without effort, even in times of discouragement or exhaustion, until even the word for suffering is known, that we all be free. As we work and begin to write our vows tomorrow, please have great confidence. Please be courageous with your own heart. No one can live your life but you. And we're afraid often, of living our life. We're so afraid. We write vows to help not only bolster our courage, but to express the courageous part of our own Sometimes we do whole retreats here on time. And when we do a retreat on time, we look at time as something that is generated in a way by our own mind. The time is not just some ticking of the clock. And everybody who has come to sushin Knows that there are times that time lasts ages. And everybody who comes to Session knows that there are some periods that just go by in a blink of time. When we're making vows, we can make vows in time. But the biggest vows are vows beyond time. The biggest vows are the vows that have a mysterious component to them that we have set the aim and we don't know how it's going to unfold because it's not going to unfold in time as we'd ordinarily think of it. It's going to unfold in something, in some place that is Always in this moment, because all time is in this moment. But some place that is beyond our ken. This is uh, uh, something from Anthony Bloom. Anthony Bloom is uh, was in uh, Russia before the revolution. And he escaped Russia only, uh, probably the purges in the 30s, I think. And he escaped from Russia and went to Europe just before World War II. And he was the, um, eventually became the patriarch patriarchal exile of the Russian Orthodox Church. And he was, um, when he escaped from Russia, he was a, a young man and he was somebody who had a deep spiritual quest who really wanted to live a spiritual life but because of the circumstances of his immigrant immigrant status he was unable to find a monastery he was unable to find uh, a place of practice and so he had to practice inside himself this is what he has to say about time and this is relevant to our Practice a vow. I want to speak about something which I believe is more important than. It is the way in which we can control and stop time. Control and stop time. That can release us from a sense of time, not objective time, the kind we can watch, but the subjective time that is running fast. For which we have the feeling of no time is left. There is absolutely no need to run after time to catch it. It does not run away from us. It runs towards us.
1: Whether your intent on the last minute
0: coming your way or whether you are completely unaware of it will come your way. The future, whatever you do about it, will become present. And so there's no need to try to jump out of the present into the future. We can simply wait for it to be there. In that respect, we can perfectly well be completely stable, yet move in time. Because it's time that moves. You know the situation when you're driving a car or on a train and you sit back. If you're not driving, you look out the window and you can read, you can think, you can relax. The train moves. And in a certain moment, what was the future? Whether it's the next station, the last station which you were going, will be the present. We can always see that. We all see that in the, in the, in uh, another side of this when we're driving driving in a car. And we're just sitting there perfectly still, not doing anything, and everything is roaring by us. 50, 60, 70 miles an hour roaring by us, and we're just sitting still, the same way time is roaring by us. The mistake we often make with our inner life is to imagine that if we hurry, we will be in our future sooner. (laughs) A little like the man who ran from the last carriage of a train, ran up through all the different cars to the first, hoping the distance between London and Edinburgh would be shortened as a result. (laughs) When it's that kind of example, we see how absurd it is. But we continually try to live an inch ahead of ourselves, We don't feel the absurdity of it. Yet that is what prevents us from being completely in the present moment. Which I dare say is the only moment in which we can be. Because even if we imagine that we are ahead of time or ahead of ourselves, we are not. The only thing is, we're in a hurry. But we're not moving more quickly for this. You must have seen this more often than than once more than once. Someone carrying luggage, running as fast as they will allow, totally intent on being someplace they're not. But you know what happens when we take a walk on a holiday. We can walk briskly, gaily, quickly,
1: or for the right age and condition,
0: we can even run we don't feel in a hurry at all because what matters at that moment is the running, not the arriving. This is the kind of thing we must learn about to establish ourselves in the present. Usually we think or behave as though the present was an imaginary line very, very thin indeed between the past and the future and that we roll from the past into the future, continually passing this line in the same way as you can roll an egg on a cloth. If you do this, it runs continuously, it is nowhere at any particular moment. There is no present because it's always in the future. Now this is the uh, part that originally caught my attention. So, we're talking about vow and we all think a vow is way out there somewhere. Okay, I'll have a vow and I'll become, I'll do, I'll be something else someplace else. But the only time that we can actually be present is the only time we can actually be present. So what is the vow right here? How does that deep, magnificent vow of our lives manifest right here? That's a vow that we can only discover right here. That's a vow that has to be opened up right here. And what of the small vows that we take? What are the vows to finish school, the vows to finish the shin, the vows to paint the house, the vows to do all those things? What about them? How did they manifest right here? That's part of the question here that we're dealing with. This is a story of his during the occupation. During the German occupation of France, I was in the resistance movement. And coming down into the underground, I was caught by the police. This is one of the most interesting experiences I ever had. Leaving aside all the romantic trimmings as to what happened and how it happened, I'll put it in more philosophical terms concerning time. What took place in that moment was this. I had a past. I had a future. And I was moving out of one to the other by walking briskly down the steps. And at a certain moment, someone put their hand to my shoulder and said, stop, give me your papers. At that moment, several thing happen, things happened. things happened. For one thing, I began to think very quickly, feel very intensely, and to be aware of the entire situation with a relief and a colorfulness which I had never perceived before on the last steps of the subway. That is, reality became stark and brilliant. You know? So imagine, hes this is this is during the war. The Gestapo is after him. The Nazis are there, or else the uh, the Vichy government, the agents of that were, were uh, he was in the underground. He was in the resistance movement, and he was walking down the steps, and suddenly a police officer said, stop, give me your papers. And instantly, you know, where he was going is no longer relevant, who he was is no longer relevant. Suddenly he became awake, completely awake. The second thing I realized was I had no past because the real past I had was the thing for I to which I would be shot. So that past was not there anymore. The false past, I, which I had prepared to talk about, never existed. And I found myself standing there like a lizard who'd been caught by the tail and had to run away, leaving the tail somewhere behind. So the lizard ended up where the tail had been. Then I discovered another thing, which was very interesting although I did not elaborate so much in the philosophy of time at the time at the moment when the police had him. What I perceived at once and what I understood gradually is that if you have a future, you have it, that if you have a future only to the extent to which you can foresee a minute before it happens or an inch before you reach it, what will come next? That is, nothing is coming next. Because you have no idea what would come, then you are like some you are like someone standing in an unknown room in the dark. You stand there, and all there is is darkness pressing on your eyes. There may be nothing, maybe nothing ahead of you, or infinity ahead of you. It's all the same thing. You end exactly where the darkness begins. And so I discovered I had no future either. It was then that I discovered that living in the past on one hand, and living in the future on the other, was simply not possible. The lizard had no tail. The darkness was on my face. I discovered that I was pressed into the present moment with all of my past. That is, everything, all the things that could be were condensed into the present moment with an intensity, a colorfulness that was exhilarating, and which allowed me eventually to get away. When one can perceive that the present moment is there, the past is irremediably gone, is irrelevant, except to the extent which it is still in the present. And the future is irrelevant because it may or may not happen. When you all you've got to do is to be so completely in the present that all your energies and all your being are summed up in the word now, you discover with great interest that you are in the now. You are the now. You are the very thin plane which geometry teaches us has, has no thickness. Is a two-dimensional plane has no thickness. Which is now. And it brings you now everything you will need in the future. It brings you now everything you will need in the future. This is the situation we must learn. That's the whole point of reading that whole thing. Is that when you have no past when we have no future, because we don't know what's going to happen. All we live is in probabilities. We don't know then what we have right here, right now. Who we are right here, right now. The skills, the aptitudes, the insights, right here, right now, completely available to us, are exactly what we need to manifest our most important our most um, our deepest contribution to the whole universe they are all available now it is not a matter of i am inadequate you are inadequate we are half formed half built half baked half broken or all the way broken it is not not is not relevant it is because the future does not exist. And because the past is completely gone, it is our direct experience of this moment. And all that is contained in it is exactly what we need, is exactly the offering that we can make to the whole universe. So we have, all have, <coughs> good reason confidence in ourselves. And the intellectual mind wanders and worries, and the psychological mind, you know, gets all afraid and quivers and does all the things that it does. That's, that's the way it is. You know? So as we, tomorrow, when we are right in tonight, you can reflect on these things tonight. What is this life about? And it's not anybody else's answer. There is nobody else's should or ought. And you should phrase things when we're doing this tomorrow any way that makes sense to you, as I said. But if we do it with confidence. It is the same thing with sushin. When we are doing sushin it is not about if I do it right, I will have the experience that I want, and then I'll have the experience that I want And I'll be happy and glowing and, you know, all things will come to be and I'll go off and give seminars and workshops and become rich and famous and write books and everybody will know who I am. You know, it is not about that. It is about seeing that who we are, this very magnificent gift of our own being that is right here, right now, unfolding exactly as it needs to unfold is exactly the place that we attend to and watch and watch the liveliness of our own being emerge from the great mysterious source. There is nothing lacking. There's nothing lacking. So you can Work with some of these threads tomorrow. We'll do the ceremony tomorrow. Jizo, and we'll make the uh, Shrine of Vows on Sunday.